0: So, welcome to another episode of PhD Podcast. We are a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM and humanities divide. I'm Dr. Zain And I'm Dr. Liz Lane, And we have a guest today that Liz and I have been waiting to get on our podcast forever. Forever. Ages. Ages. Um, I've been <laughs> admiring the writing on for a very long time before... Before this moment, um, a very pro- <laughs> let's see. Um, so this is Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein. Uh, she has uh, she's an astrophysicist uh, working on early cos- uh, cosmology. Uh, her she her previous positions include postdocs at NASA, MIT. She's currently at the University of Washington, so we're in the same time zone, very close to each other.
1: Yay. Um, and she's oh, Canadian.
2: Uh, are you Canadian?
1: I'm not Canadian.
2: You're not. Okay. I'm from Los
1: Angeles. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, know, I thought you were
0: from Canada. But she did her PhD at Waterloo and has an okay. amazing, despite, and also being an amazing scientist, um, as we both discovered, has an amazing knowledge of Canadian, African and uh, Asian and Canadian mm-hmm. literature. So there are so many things that we want to talk to Dr. Chanda about. Um so, Liz, how about you? You start off, or maybe, um, Chanda, do you want to say something briefly Yeah, about so,
2: welcome to the podcast, and let me first ask, Thank what you. do you prefer that we call you, uh, Dr. Um, Prescott? Chanda, Winston, Chanda, Chanda?
1: Chanda is fine. Yeah,
2: Chanda is fine. Chanda, if you're nasty. Okay, yeah. so... <laughs> so, so yeah, we're super excited and I know that all of our listeners are going to be too. So, why don't we start off and let you describe yourself? So, who are you and
1: why do you do what you what do you do and why do you do it? Wait, I wasn't prepared for hard questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I so What can I say? The introduction was so good. So I'm Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. (laughs) I am a research associate in physics at the University of Washington. I specialize in early universe cosmology. So I worry about the universe when it was under a second old. I also think about the dark matter problem. And I am one of the first 100 African-American women to earn a PhD in physics. I am from Los Angeles. I'm from East L.A. for anyone who knows Los Angeles. (laughs) Um, But I did do my Ph.D. in Canada and at the University of Waterloo, which is about 70 miles southwest of Toronto for Americans who don't know Southern Ontario geography. (laughs) And one of the reasons I know so much about Afro-Canadian literature is because I was a naive American when I moved to Canada and didn't really realize that the cultural context would actually be quite different. And I found myself in Waterloo, which is traditionally an extremely white community, mm-hmm. trying to figure out the racism that I was witnessing and experiencing. And mm. um, even hearing racial slurs that we don't really, I didn't know people used after 1960. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, <laughs> what? I had a moment where I was literally the spook who sat by the door for anyone who's a Sam Greenlee fan. And so I I actually use literature as an education and survival mechanism. And I think that that has been a lesson that I've carried with me as a scientist, I guess I would say, just to to bring it back to that comment about why I knew Afro-Canadian literature, that for me, understanding Canadian literature became how I understood my experience as an African-American in Canada. Mm. That's not really a comment about dark matter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would like to add that. So, actually, last night um, I brought, I had the chance to go to this advanced screening of the movie Loving about Mm -hmm. um, Loving versus Virginia. For our listeners who might not know, it's the iconic um, Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court case that struck down anti miscegenation laws. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I had an opportunity to go for free and I brought a whole bunch of my friends. And um, mm-hmm. I, when I emailed RSVP PR person, I was like, we are a group of women of color academics who work on social justice. And <laughs> so I was like, there's no way they can turn us down. Um, but <laughs> af- afterwards, like one of my friends, um, so... Among my friends is one friend who's uh, black Canadian, another one who's African-American, and my friend who's African-American from North Carolina commented that there was something really weird about seeing this movie in Canada. Hmm. Of course, such an iconic... Li- and, and I was like, yeah, that's also sort of like this the strangeness of... I think in Canada, we're much more comfortable talking about race in terms of the US, uh, U.S. context, and so many of our cultural objects about race We consume are about America. So it's sort of weird that it becomes a spectacle and object for us, which also ends up being a kind of distancing from um, Mm -hmm. how
1: race operates in our own context. So I think that I had lucky timing if I was going to do what I did and sort of drop out of a PhD program in astronomy very suddenly and switch to a PhD program in physics and leave Santa Cruz, California, which is where I was, and move to Waterloo, Ontario, that I happened to do it in the summer and fall of 2006, which was just a few months before Lawrence Hill's The Book of Negroes came out. He's going to be coming here next... next, um,
0: Anyway, sorry. Oh, I'm so jealous. (laughs) I'm going to get to April.
1: Anyway. So, So the first thing that happened is that I was in a bookstore basically the week that the book came out. And so, for those who don't know, the Book of Negroes—I um, think people now know it because it t- was turned into a miniseries, which aired in the United States as well. And he co-wrote the miniseries. And um, but so it's—it's it's about basically slavery in the United States and about the um, enslaved Black people who fought for the British loyalists or worked with the British loyalists during the American Revolution. And their experiences and their experience of trying to get freedom in a, a British Canadian context in Atlantic Canada, and so it's a it's historical fiction. And so the book has in the Canadian version of the book has this extremely striking cover with a very dark skinned um, black face on the cover with scars on it. And Mm -hmm. it says the book of Negroes in very big letters. And I saw it across the bookstore and I was like, what the, what is that? (laughs) Yeah, Mm
2: -hmm. exactly. I had
1: already seen some stuff in Waterloo. I was ready to set the bookstore on fire because I was just like, there's no way this is good. And Mm -hmm. I picked up the book. I started reading it and three pages into it, I'm crying in the middle of the bookstore. And it starts out with a kidnapping in Africa. And Mm -hmm. that's the beginning of the story. So a month later, Lawrence Hill, the author, came to Waterloo. And if you've never seen Lawrence, he's extremely light-skinned. I'm light-skinned. He's lighter than I am. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And he has an interesting Canadian story. His parents were both American. When his mother was white, his father was black. His father came to Canada to get his PhD. And then they decided to stay for various reasons, including relating to the Loving versus Virginia story and his father became Ontario's first human rights commissioner. Yeah. And so I'm looking at him and I'm like, okay, so this guy knows some things about what the experience I'm having in Canada. So I, I approached him afterwards and I said like, look, can I talk to you? I don't I don't know what I'm doing as an American here. I don't know how to translate these experiences and also it was this book coming out in the US. Americans need to read it. Um and he told me yes it is coming out in the united states but it will be called somebody knows my name because harper collins my publisher didn't think americans could handle the title the book of negroes wow and hmm. so i guess i sort of told the story because when it was actually having contact with a black canadian author he was also there with afua cooper who is an african canadian historian historian and poet and they both gave me advice about how to be black in canada Um, But also, because of Lawrence's own heritage, all of his novels have been about being black across the Canadian-U.S. border, and Mm. about where there are divergences and where there are commonalities, and how people have, at various points, gone in one direction or the other, trying to escape the racism of the one or the other. Mm. And so I even, just thinking about what you were saying, Zion, like, I I think that his writing is really responding to that tension in his own way as a a Canadian, an Afro-Canadian with American roots, I guess, is maybe Mm -hmm. how he would put it. Mm -hmm. And it really became salvation for me in a lot of ways. I don't know if I would have survived Waterloo without that. I could mm-hmm. just talk about Lawrence for like an hour.
2: <laughs> no, that's great that you mentioned it. We'll definitely put a link in the bio so that people can follow mm-hmm. up on this. But speaking of your PhD, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work?
1: Um, okay, so let me start by saying that we have no clue what dark matter is. I <laughs> so, um, And I actually think, you know, one of the, the cool things about science, I don't know how you think about it, mm-hmm. Liz, but... Um, science is really about what we don't know and less Mm. about what we do know. I think that, you know, in science for general education courses, we portray it as we have all of this stuff that we know. Here it is. It's in a textbook. Um, so dark matter is called dark matter because it is matter that we believe is out there, but it is not luminous. So that means it doesn't radiate. Mm -hmm. Another way of putting it is it doesn't produce photons, so when we look at the when we look at the sky right now out in Seattle, the sun is setting right now. The sun we know the sun is there because the sun is radiating light at us. It's radiating photons,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so that is what we would call luminous matter. And really, for the most part, the most concrete thing we know about dark matter is that it typically doesn't do that. I <laughs> am um, typically though. Typically, so there's, and and so I say typically because um, we actually do still hope that it will have some kind of what we would call an interaction, so um, a way of mixing with regular, what we would call regular matter, like everyday stuff like us, Mm -hmm. and we hope that it, it does have some kind of engagement that will lead to us being able to detect it. So there are actually lots of experiments called direct detection experiments that are trying to catch a a dark matter particle. Mm -hmm. And so the particle that I have worked on, the axion, that's the one that I think about the most, that's a hypothesized dark matter candidate, so we've never seen it, is one where if you put it in a very strong magnetic field, it would radiate a photon, and so it might produce some light if you put it in the right conditions. Hmm. So that's an example where it's dark, but it's not necessarily dark. I should say, by the way, that I feel like a black physicist never would have used the term dark matter. But that's <laughs> just me.
2: All, like, weird. <laughs> what you would you call them? it if you could rename it? What would you call it?
1: Um Ether's already taken, so. Yeah, ether. No, ether. I I actually think it's possible that in another scenario, it might have been called like um, non-luminous ether or something like that, Mm. since it basically kind of does similar things to what people thought the ether might do, Mm -hmm. right? In terms of being everywhere and like Mm -hmm. we think it's possible, dark matter is flying through us right now, for example, right? Um, so, the way that we we have come to believe that dark matter is out there is if you look at a galaxy, you can look at how stars are moving in the galaxy. So, we call this measuring the rotation curve. So, basically, how stars are rotating, usually galaxies are rotating um, in some kind of, like, circle-like motion. And... So, you can measure how fast the stars are moving. And you can also count the stars mm-hmm. based on how many photons are arriving. So, you're counting basically the luminous matter. And using how fast things are moving, you can calculate how massive you think the galaxy is um, based on. And you can also calculate how massive the galaxy is based on how many stars you count, right? So you would think that those two things are going to match. You use how fast the stars are moving. Okay. You use how many stars you're counting. And you're thinking that they're both going to tell you, like, I don't know. like It's like if you weigh yourself on two different scales, you expect them to give you approximately the same answer. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that those two numbers don't match up. And the amount of matter that you expect to be in a galaxy when you measure the rotation curves is actually much more massive than what you get from counting the stars. And so this indicates that there is a bunch of matter that we're not counting. Mm-hmm. And so um, Franz Zwicky, I'm probably not pronouncing it right, was the theoretical physicist who first thought of the idea of dark matter in the 1930s. But it wasn't until Vera Rubin came along in... Um, that name sounds familiar. The 50s familiar. Or the 60s, yes. <laughs> um, and she was the first person who really thought about how could we check this. And she was the one who thought of the rotation curve check. And that's one of the reasons why we keep saying she should win the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. It was really her, um, she and worked with a, a telescope builder and the two of them together were really the people who thought of how How can we check this? And it's now a problem that has produced many papers. We've spent a lot of money trying to figure it out. And it's obviously a problem that captures the public's imagination. So that's always nice PR, too. Yeah,
2: and I think this is very interesting because there are many things that physicists say exist, and we don't know they exist And so we theorize them until we can develop the experimental techniques to prove it. And a lot of them have come to fruition. And so one of the things I think about dark matter, you know, is it going to be something that we are going to keep theorizing Um, or how long will it take for us to finally, you know, bring those Mm. two points together? or can we right because at some point we're reaching a physical limit i mean thinking about particle accelerators as an example and there's only so large a particle accelerator we can build to detect a smaller particle
1: so i think that the i think there's there's good news and there's bad news <laughs> Most of the direct detection experiments that we do for dark matter don't involve particle accelerators. Okay. So in particle accelerators, you're smashing particles together to see basically what happens when you break them up Uh or to test ideas about what happens when you break them up. In the case of dark matter, you're just trying to catch one. So it's a lot more like putting out um, a net or... for example, salmon fishermen in Alaska put out salmon wheels where they're trying to capture salmon as they go down the river, mm-hmm. go down the Yukon River. Um, and so a lot of direct detection doesn't necessarily. So at the University of Washington, we have an experiment called the Axion Dark Matter Experiment. It's known as ADMX. Mm-hmm. and No fancy I, acronym the first there. No fancy acronym, acronym there. That's true. Um, so, the first time I saw the experiment, I kind of expected it to be like this massive room filling thing mm-hmm. because that was what I had seen when I went to visit CERN in Geneva, the Large Hadron Collider, mm-hmm. was this massive, several floors, several rooms. <laughs> like yeah, it makes cute. you feel like an ant. And instead, the um, ADMX um, experiment, yes, it takes up about a room of space, but the actual cavity that we hope the axion will fly through is. Um, Smaller than I am. Wow. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I think that in terms of detection, we're not necessarily limited by even what we know technologically now. I think that the, the other good news is that humans have a lot of ingenuity. Mm-hmm. We're really good at figuring out things that we didn't think we could figure out, and what seemed impossible 500 years ago is now like every day or even I keep thinking about if my grandfather could see me talking to my husband using my Apple watch his mind just would right even things that weren't imaginable when we were born Mm -hmm. are now like everyday stuff the bad news is of course if for some reason dark matter isn't flowing through where we are then maybe we never catch one. Or if dark matter is the kind that we need to produce in a particle accelerator, and there are some candidates that it would be nice to find in an accelerator, then that could be an unfortunate situation for us. But I think that with basic science, the key is to expect the unexpected. Mm-hmm. I
0: would agree. So one thing, I, uh, since you're talking about imagination, um, I, I speak, of course, to someone who... His PhD is in literature, but has had a lifelong love of science fiction. And when I was little, I wanted to be an astrophysicist, but then I realized there's a lot of math involved. <laughs> so I'm merely someone who likes to I like to follow science news and I 09. Um, which is all to say that I think that's of course there's interesting intersections with the blurring between science and science fiction that I think I've encountered often frustrates some scientists, but also can be together in really productive ways. I can't help but think that of the photo that Ava DuVernay tweeted, I think on the first day of filming for the new wrinkle in time movie, yeah. like this, she's wearing this t-shirt that says something like I'm, am, I am my ancestors wildest dreams or something like that, which I think sort of perfectly mm. captures like the way that the speculative imagination feeds into, into aspects of science fiction, which is all, which is all to say like, um, yeah, I guess what are your, because I obviously dark matter because it's been so, popular in in pop culture generally um has been the source of much inspiration but are there things about the portrayal that you wish would be a little bit more accurate um does is it helpful is it unhelpful does mm-hmm. it help science funding um yeah in your particular case what do you think about the public portrayal of either dark matter or astrophysics in general and popular culture
1: you know, I feel, I feel a little bit fraudulent answering this question yeah. because I've never been big on science fiction. <laughs> um, even it's though okay, uh... you guys know that like, I'm, I seem to tweet about Star Trek like all the time, yeah. yeah. including <laughs> like <laughs> being like a Star Trek a- convention attending dork. Um, I already have my tickets for the convention next year. So I take that like super seriously. I'm um, I I think one of the fascinating things about Star Trek in particular, not to totally like Trekkie out here, is that <laughs> I think that Gene Roddenberry and everybody who worked on Star Trek over the years was so imaginative that they led scientists in certain directions. Like I think people got interested in teleportation, partly because it was such a thing on Star Trek. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, I think that Star Trek has played a huge role, among other things as well in framing how we think about what constitutes development, what constitutes progress in science. And one of the reasons that I am so particularly attract to Star, a, a, attracted and attached to Star Trek is because they didn't think of... Roddenberry and, and, and Madgell, um, Roddenberry, his wife, who I think played a big role in envisioning it, um... Didn't think about it in a silo. They didn't think about just science. They thought about what kind of technological society would we want to see. What what mm-hmm. is the future? What is the future technological society that we want? Rather than let's what science do we want? Let's just see what happens. Yeah. Oh well. Um, and, and so there are, there are certain types of science fiction that I'm attracted to for that reason. I worry a lot about the impact of technology on society. So there's a Canadian TV show called Continuum, which Americans can watch on Netflix, that is completely about, um, the dynamic between technology and society and fascism and authoritarian corporatism. And so I think it has a lot of relevance to, to us right now and I would say that that show basically portrays my worst nightmare and then tries mm-hmm. to reckon with how do you avoid that mm. and so I, I think that science fiction can be incredibly powerful in holding up a mirror to who we are and what that can mean for our future and I'm so I want to be like, I'm totally one of those scientists who really doesn't care whether the science is accurate or not. <gasps> um, I'm not that person. But I,
2: <laughs> I'm the <laughs> opposite.
1: <laughs> but I get really, really worked up about um, mistakes in Star Trek. I think partly because they typically do so well that when they mess uh, up, I get really angry. Mm-hmm. And I do like to talk through time travel things. Mm. Maybe because I was trained as a graduate student as a general relativist. Mm-hmm. Um I will say, though, that actually the the real sci-fi head in the household is my husband. Mm. Mm. He writes Star Trek fan fiction. He's probably going to be unhappy are... with me for saying that on a podcast, but there it that is. That is
0: perfectly fine. I feel like we're the right audience for exactly. that. So Very quick question. Who's Who's your favorite captain, then? Ooh. I,
1: <laughs> I know you're supposed to say Picard because, like, Picard, Picard. But um, I am... Totally, like, what would Black Janeway do now? Mm -hmm. That's, like, Mm -hmm. my life question. (laughs) I'm a Captain Janeway fan.
2: I never watched Star Trek. I used to, and so when I joined my PhD lab, it was so funny because I also didn't watch Star Wars. And I one day mistakenly switched Star Wars and Star Trek in a conversation. And he looks at me, my advisor looks at me, he's like, but you study physics. How do you not know this? And I'm like, because they said episode. And I was like, oh, which, which episode? Like, which season? And it just, like, I outed myself. And then he told me to leave lab right then. Don't come back until you watch all of them. He gave me an order to watch them in. And then, you know, I did it. I mean, it was a joke, but I also did watch Star Trek, and I took a few notes. Star That's Wars, exactly I'm sorry, followed. Star you Wars, to Avatar, The Last Airbender, list? same thing. So I don't know this. And then um, one thing I wanted to add, because you guys were talking about it, I, I just my dedication to my thesis was now that I'm reflecting on it, kind of weird. I mean, so I to the women in my life, you tell me that I'm your dreams made flesh. That I've accomplished more things and you, that you've only dreamed of, and I hope that's still true. And I remember when I was writing my um, my acknowledgments and like my dedication, I was really thinking about what I who did, who was important to me, what did I want to do, and I just thought it all of a sudden I started thinking about my mother and my grandmother, and they were science teachers, and for reasons that you know they had children really early or they just had to take care of other people, and I'm doing things that they. Like, I just think about, like, my great-grandparents being slaves and all of that, and just kind of coming here to the ivory tower of ivory towers and having this degree. And then I also dedicated it to to Bobby, and I remember I said time, the space-time continuum, which was a joke that we used to have about, so this is lame, but you know when people are, like, hang up the phone? No, you hang up and you kind of play this game. So we kind of play this, like... Um, I love you, I love you more kind of thing. Yeah. And so, like, my trump card, I know that's going to be hard to say from now on. Trump card is going to mean something different. But my trump card was like, I love you time to space-time continuum. You can't
0: yeah. beat that. Those that's really everywhere.
2: It's everything, right? It's like, it's it's here. Um, yeah, and then he tried to top me, but I was like, no, yeah. that's not. Yeah. That's it. But anyway, I was just thinking about how you made me think of my dissertation, <laughs> um, dedication or something else that we said.
1: So I think that's so powerful when, when I was putting, so mm. I, I, um, quoted Langston Hughes on my dedication page, I'm mm. um, hold fast to dreams. And I left it as a note to myself basically, mm-hmm. which I have gone back to accidentally basically every time I look at my dissertation I'm reminded (laughs) I said hold fast to dreams (laughs) because I had heard being a postdoc was very hard Mm -hmm. I I didn't even know man I did not understand not to scare all the PhD students out there but I did not understand um, but I kind of wonder, for you, were you thinking about it as kind of a note to yourself? Was it just a love note to your family? Was it um, a reminder to yourself to walk in those footsteps? Or how did you think about that as you were doing it?
2: The way I saw my dissertation was the science was peer-reviewed. It was gone through this kind of process and in a way didn't have my voice anymore. And my acknowledgement section and my dis and my dedication were could be in my words and they were going to be the most me thing about me like me the most me that's not kind of homogenized to be academic part of my dissertation that would represent me and so this is my way of saying like this is who I am you will not take this away from me like you won't take this the self-sacrifice that I put into this um I wasn't really thinking of it as a reminder to myself, but I was thinking very outwardly, like, if you read this, you need to understand that this is the person who did all that science, Um, that the women in my life are important. You need to understand that I came from slaves. So that was, for me, kind of this outward, like, because also, like, my committee reads this. People, and so I just wanted that to be if this is a reflection of me and what I've done over the last five years, this is what I want you to know that I'm thinking about. And if my parents ever read it, that's what they're going to read. So
1: I actually had to file a human rights complaint to get my (gasps) dissertation accepted because of what was, because of my dedication page. I dedicated, so I was very, very close with my grandfather who, um, On my dad's side, he was a a white, poor white Jew from Brooklyn. Um, who spent his life working in factories. And one of the reasons that he never got an education beyond high school was because he had a younger sibling who showed an early talent as an opera singer. And so the entire family dedicated all of their resources to paying for her singing lessons. And she ended up having an extraordinary career as an opera singer. She lives in Italy now. She has a daughter who works um, for an opera in Belgium as a soprano coach. Um, They're an incredibly fascinating group. And so... But my grandfather was always really interested in science and wanted my dad to become a scientist. And my dad was like, no, I'm going to become a <laughs> grassroots labor <laughs> union dude. Um, and so my dad was a gas man and a union man. And so his whole shtick with me was mm-hmm. she's going to be a scientist. And um, he bought me an Apple IIe computer wow. when I was, like, two. And and that was – and unfortunately, he died when I was six. And so, like um, – It's been kind of this thing of me engaging with his memory of encouragement and wanting to fulfill this thing for him. Even though I became interested in cosmology for reasons really unrelated to wanting to fulfill any Mm -hmm. dreams on his part. And so, of course, like, um, you know, like. I think it was beyond his wildest dreams, like speaking of your ancestors' dreams, that he would have a, a granddaughter mm-hmm. who would go to Harvard, right. much less go on to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. And so I Yiddish was his first language because he was born in 1917 and in Yiddish-speaking Brooklyn. And so I wrote a dedication to my grandfather, mm-hmm. I Have Missed You So Much, in mm-hmm. Yiddish. And oh the Graduate Studies Office rejected my dissertation yeah. when I submitted it. Um, after I had done all of the (sighs) corrections, et cetera, um, because they said that it was not in the official language of English. (sighs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And so totally the wild thing about it is that they didn't even give me the option of putting it in French, Mm. which, because it's a Canadian institution, they were supposed to say it had to be in English or French if they were really going to do that. And so I complained to the Human Rights Office. And one of the nice things, actually... you know, I feel like Canadian racism versus American racism is like half a <laughs> dozen versus six. Um, but there was a human rights office that I could complain to, which is not the case at any of the American institutions that I've been at.
0: I don't think there's, there's not one
1: at Cornell. Right. And so the human rights office talked to them about it and came up with a compromise. So it's in Yiddish and then underneath the Yiddish, okay. there's an English translation. Um, But it was like a whole drama that like my dissertation was actually accepted by the university a week later than when it should have been simply because I had wanted to put um, this language that effectively has been killed Mm -hmm. off. um, That was mostly spoken by poor people into to to, to say thank you to my grandfather. Um, So (laughs) I feel like I totally hear you about the dedication page and wanting to put something of yourself and your family into it. That was one of the reasons I was curious about your experience yeah.
2: yeah now I look back at it and I'm really grateful that I did it I wasn't even thinking about how it would impact me in the future you know a year later to think I'm so happy I wrote that I'm so happy I had the um, bravery to do that and not be like um, yeah. you know something
0: generic I can't help but think now that it'd be such an interesting speaking as someone who works on literature and histories of science how interesting would it be both of you talking about the, the function that your uh, dedication pages uh, serve, what would it be like to have a project where someone like mm. me goes through all these dissertations by, like, women of color in science and, like, tries, and how do you reconcile, like, this very personal embodied experience with the, the hard science of the rest of your work? Yeah. This is actually something I might want to look at. Yeah. On. I love that
1: um, idea. This I would be such a great project,
2: outcome. even. Like, uh, even a really like, a media uh, thing where you people just were yeah. posting what they had, their, um, what their dedications were.
0: Yeah, it would be, like, a great Tumblr, at the very least. Oh, yeah. That seems, yeah. like... Oh, you're, that's you inspiring me.
1: Excellent. Oh, my God, this Tumblr is what happens material. when we come together. So actually, great I'm ideas gonna... just coming out. I mean, yeah, let's do this yes. again. I love it. Let's <laughs> form a think tank. We could have... Yes, thank God. Great Tumblr ideas at the very least. But actually, like, on the subject of, like, dissertation, getting through the dissertation-related things and also science fiction, um, one of the things that I did while I was writing my dissertation up, which like I think can be hard to appreciate how hard that's mm-hmm. going to be until like you're in the mm-hmm. middle of it and you hate your dissertation because you've read it, you've read everything in it over and over again and you don't want to write the introduction and there's all this stuff going on. Um, and I was also just mm-hmm. feeling really demoralized um, having been the only black woman in my program, having been one of the only women in my program. I People know that I've talked online quite a bit about the racism and the sexism that w- I witnessed. Mm-hmm. I had gone through a divorce and definitely being in a PhD program was part of it. Um, Janelle Monet's The Arch Android came out yes. the yes. year that I was writing up my dissertation. And I just kind of, I wanted to make sure that, like, I just pointed to her as um, a black woman that I look up to and also as a science fiction writer yes. that I look up to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because a lot of times people have only listened to The Arch Android or Electric Lady separately. Mm-hmm. And they haven't listened to them in the context of her EP, Metropolis First, right. and then and the Arch-Android, and then the Electric Because then the
2: interviews won't make sense. Like, anyway. Yes, <laughs> it's
1: it's a science fiction um, R&B pop opera yes. that is about slavery and freedom. Yeah. And what it means to be human, what it means to be yeah. dehumanized and defined. And can I is just mention human? that
2: earlier today, partially why I was late was because I found this flyer in my building. And so there's a German literature lecture, and a guy, his topic was Janelle Monet, and how and <gasps> the foundation of the metropolis. So he actually, first of all, I was like, someone's talking about Janelle Monet. And I went there and he like we watched a video, we actually read like her whole synopsis of Metropolis, like how Cindy may wear like a foundation, and he tied back to like the other German guy who did Metropolis. I know there's a historical context, Fritz but it felt it was, was so, so empowering to see
1: that. What is there a recording?
2: No, there wasn't. But I took. I should have recorded it. I but I I was unfamiliar with how um, humanities people like was it safe to just yeah. put up and just start recording because. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Someone would have, anyway, oh. I was, I have flyers, I have copies of it, just the actual presence of showing the album covers and showing everything and this white man is like talking about Janelle Monet. and I'm like, and he, and I'm listening to it as if like, he's talking as if people in the audience don't know who she is and I'm assuming they didn't but I knew all about her. Mm. Anyway, continue your story I but I just wanted to say that it was such that. great sim- <laughs> like synergy here with topics.
1: No, I just wanted to say like, I think that Janelle Monet, um, her, her, so I think a lot of times people will say, like, this celebrity really got me through this because mm-hmm. they inspired me in some way. I don't think that that's unusual. I think Janelle Monet doesn't get her due, in my opinion. No. And I think mm-hmm. part of it is that she's weird. She's nerdy. Mm-hmm. She's like super nerdy. She's science fiction y. Um, and she, I think that she she's queer. She's queer. I, yeah. I'm, yes. I'm not going to yes. be foul Chanda, but she's... she's. I don't know if she's actually queer or not, but she's queer. Um, I believe she's queer in, in too, book. but
2: she doesn't care. I don't think she thinks people need to know, and I kind of appreciate how she's... Like, that doesn't matter. That shouldn't
1: matter. And I think that, that that... Right. And I think it's because it comes through in how she is, what she does, and she's just kind of, like... She's queer in all senses of the word, I guess is what She's I. She's let it drop saying. a few
2: times too, as I'm close reading some of her interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I,
1: know I what love you're how you picked about. up this term for me, Liz. But and there, are, I feel like she has always put out music that spoke to me in really spiritual ways at moments when I really needed it. And the same thing happened when she put out the Electric Lady. Yeah. Um, the song Sally Ride, <gasps> it took me a couple of months to listen to that song without crying. Yeah. Partly because what a lot of people don't know about Sally Ride, I think even now, besides that she was the first American woman mm-hmm. to go into space, was that she was a lesbian mm-hmm. and she had to hide it her entire life. It was not really something that was publicly mm-hmm. and widely known know in any way until she died. Yeah. And right. So this is this is what I mean by queer, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. like... I think it's very evident that Janelle was thinking about this lesbian who is a national treasure, a nationally celebrated hero. This woman, um, a physicist, a PhD in physics. She was like such an accomplished and beloved person. Mm -hmm. And still this core part of who she was was hidden Mm -hmm. and it was considered um. For the it was considered part of the national need that she not be known as a queer woman and that she keep that part of her mm-hmm. life private and I think that the the, the song really spoke to and it to my marches experience it feels like a march as, yes it feels like a march and I I think it spoke to my experience as a as a, as a black woman postdoc. Mm. Who's the only woman working, black woman working in theoretical cosmology mm-hmm. in the United States? Wow. Um, and mm-hmm. in North America, as far as I know, um, who has a PhD. And being like, yes, what is it like when you are basically walking around like a freak? Um, and I don't necessarily mean people are looking at you like a freak, although I think for those of us who are black women scientists, even if you're light-skinned like I am, people are looking at you like a freak sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely having that experience with some of my postdoc at MIT. Um, but also to walk around knowing internally that relatively speaking, you are not, one of these is not like the others and you are that one that is not like the others. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to give a shout out to Jan- Janelle Monet for showing us as a black person how to represent that as a science fiction story. Yeah. I love that. Mm. And I love her for that. Yeah. Let's have a. Sorry, I could also talk about Janelle Monet for an hour. <laughs> this is a good list. I want to meet her so bad. Janelle Monet, oh. listen to this podcast and We're definitely
0: gonna We're definitely gonna tweet this out. Yeah. You know,
1: <laughs> we'll just we're just gonna
0: try. We'll try. So Janelle
2: Monet <laughs> came to Cornell in twenty something. And I Yeah. I was so upset because at the time I didn't know who she was. And so I I know. And I would see the flyers. And it was also it was a bad period of life for me. Let's just say that. But I saw the flyers and I was so upset because I was like in the middle of grief. And I remember that one of my friends um, introduced me to Tightrope, that song Tightrope. And Ooh, she yes. was me- like the video was mesmerizing. The song I listened to it like every single moment of every single day to get me through that. And I was so pissed off. I was so angry at myself that she was actually there and I didn't see her because I didn't know who she was. So
1: if you haven't listened to the song "Many Moons," they played them Metropolis. Sure. So Have you seen the music video for Many Moons?
0: Yeah, like it opens sort of like with this robot slave auction. Yes.
1: It's, I love her. But everybody needs to watch Many Moons. And I actually think that the story that she tells um, is relevant. I don't know. Everything is relevant to what happened last week. But in Mm. light, (laughs) I know I said I didn't like want to be like, I'm going to cry about the election (laughs) now because... I'm so much of white America hates me. I'm um, because that's like in yeah. some sense not news or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, uh-huh. But I watched that over the weekend and I was like, okay, this is just like, this is what we do. We do this. And I really that's part of what's amazing about Janelle Monae's music videos is they're about like this is just what we do, we do this, we survive it, we thrive. And in the liner notes of the arch android, she talks about thrivals, a generation that mm. will not just survive, but will thrive. Mm. And that's what I was thinking about when I wrote my dissertation, just to bring mm. it back to that, is I was like, I'm I'm gonna be a thrival, and I'm gonna be one of I'm gonna thrive, and then I'm gonna make thrivals.
2: That's my plan. I like that so much. That resonates. So I don't know. I haven't told you this, Chanda, but um, I'm and I, I'm in my first year, first year of my postdoc, and I made it a point to mentor undergrads. Um, I could use the help too, but I can't tell you how I was unprepared for that experience when a black student came into my office, and and it dawned like that moment. It dawned on me that I had never had a like a professor that was black or a woman. Like teaching me in my classes, and I was kind of like a pioneer in those spaces. And now all of a sudden, there's a black student Mm -hmm. who has a black mentor, and I—I mean—and then I was like, "Keep it together, Liz. You're still Dr. Wayne right now. (laughs) he goes, you know." (laughs) You have to cry
1: later. But it (laughs) just hit
2: me. And then there was this way in which I—I want to do this. I really do want to do this. The system's like making me sad right now, but. I really do want to do it and trying to like thrive in this space.
1: I think that, you know, it, it, it's obviously like it's a mixed bag because it can be a lot of work having those students walk into your office. Yeah. And um, it depending on like how you deal with empathy and how you deal with emotions, like for me, I'm hyper empathetic. And so when they come in with a tough story, it's mm-hmm. hard on me. I am definitely crying at home about it later. Um, I hate that my mentees are going to do that, but I get really stressed out about the (laughs) terrible things that happened to them. Um, But there is also something really powerful that I try and remember that I am someone that I didn't have. Yes, yes. And – um, as slow as progress feels, progress is way too slow, in my opinion. As you guys know, mm-hmm. I think that the scientific mm-hmm. community, the larger academic community, simply doesn't try hard enough. Um, but I also, I guess I kind of want to say to you, Liz, like, this is one of the reasons why I always say every single one of the black women PhDs, and in general, the women of color PhDs who are produced, are precious for this exact reason, because students can have the experience of walking into our office mm-hmm. and it is altering in a way that it can't be for someone from a group that is widely represented in mm-hmm, academia. Mm-hmm. And I think that things like like what you're talking about is, but it's, it's also, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Like that whole like don't cry thing is like a lot of pressure to like also not be in the middle of having a day where you can't control the reaction you're having. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I'd say that Chanda, I've seen you tweet about this a lot and as important symbolic work it is, I just wish that especially junior faculty, I guess uh, like yourselves, is not, this work is not being recognized and it's just like you're not being compensated by the university for it. And I've seen you tweet about like you have so many people reaching out to you. And it's of course, it's important work, and it's important work that we like, but it's always ones that follow overwhelmingly on the shoulders of, you know, people of color, women of color, peers uh, in the track. academy who, yeah, who yes. already are in a battle position, who are already struggling to do the stuff on our CV that would allow us to survive in academic environments. And of course, we're deeply uh, deeply obligated to our communities and feel ourselves as deeply connected to them. So, but nonetheless, this effective labor is one that the university does not recognize, but benefits from. Um,
1: I, I think that so I used to not talk about feeling frustrated about it in public nearly as much. And I think mm-hmm. like a lot of different things happened like the controversy about the 30 meter telescope on Mauna Kea mm-hmm. happened. And there were a lot of like deeply personal attacks involved in, in, in that because I didn't agree with a lot of the mainstream community about the approach being taken to getting the 30 meter telescope built. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: I was then subject to, so there's this, coke brothers funded media outfit called campus reform that for a while was extra into attacking black women academics who spoke out on social media in particular oh god um and i was one of them at one point and it's had significant repercussions for like the way that i even walked down the street um I don't always wear headphones like I used to. I had to be coached and how to be, to keep an eye out for whether I was being followed wow. and that kind of thing. So um, it went
2: from cyber to actually like where
1: you. Well, we had to prepare for the possibility okay. that I'm mm-hmm. um, there there are ways to find where someone works, where someone lives, et cetera. And so we all know, we've heard about doxing. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. am, um, my husband was afraid to leave me home by myself for a while. It was like, and, and I think that that sort of changed my sense of like, well, you know what? It might be that I'm going to be walking down the street and someone's going to push me in front of a car tomorrow. So what do I want to mm-hmm. say to the world before somebody pushes me in front of a car? I am, um, And that was part of it. And then I think the other thing that happened is that I went on the academic job market and got shortlisted for multiple faculty positions. And one of the searches was canceled. Um, I was also shortlisted for a postdoc. Every single job that I was shortlisted for went to a white man who was already in the department. And... (sighs) And in one of the cases, the students in the department spent their entire meeting with me, particularly queer students and also the visible Mm -hmm. minority students in the department, asking me what I was going to do about department culture. And that department eventually hired a white man who was already in the department, who clearly was already part of the department culture. Yeah. Status quo to the max. And I was like, okay. So I kind of knew this going in, that this work wasn't valued. But then I was like, somebody needs to tell people that that's messed up. Like we just need to be like more head on direct that you guys can't just rely on us to do this labor Mm -hmm. for free and then act like it's not a significant contribution to science or to English literature Mm -hmm. or whatever your particular scholarly specialization is. But this whole suggestion that I am... making sure that students stay in their programs, don't drop out of the physics major, don't fail their classes, don't drop out of their PhD program, doesn't contribute to science. Like if the student's still in the PhD program writing papers, seems kind of like a contribution Absolutely to science. Absolutely true. To
2: me. Helps your ratings too. Your rankings.
1: And th- at, at some point, I just got mad about that. I was like, so this isn't going on my CV, but I'm doing the work. And then people are telling me, like, oh, you're spending your time on the wrong stuff. And I'm like, well, you know what? Maybe if, you know, you guys didn't suck as mentors, I could just think, <laughs> think about axions. Right. Um, like, this is really, on some level, a choice that the f- the faculty who are currently in positions of power are making for the rest yeah. of the field.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why that's one of the reasons I got noisy about it. I guess is that at some point I was just like, I'm tired, and keeping my mouth shut hasn't gotten me a faculty position. So yeah,
2: <laughs> you know, and I'd even argue it's not just the faculty and hiring committees. I believe it goes all the way up and even to funding agencies. I had a meeting recently, yep, um, with the director of the uh, NIGMS National Institute of General Medical Sciences. It's one of the largest. Um, funding sources institutes at NIH and uh, he came and he was talking to diverse postdocs like myself Um, and he asked like he said faculty diversity has not improved in the last um, 25 years diversity of the population like grad students has increased but the faculty has remained much the same why do you think that is (laughs) so obviously we told him (laughs) But what?
1: I roll right. Like I mean, and it's, the thing
2: is, it's not new. And I'm like, you keep self-selecting for this, and then you know he was.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it's one That's of these strange. things where oh. you have someone yeah. high up, and they are very considerate. They say they understand the situation, but they don't know what to do about it, um, and they're trying to ask me what funding, what should they do about the problem? And it's like, well, how the how the hell do I know? what to really do about it and then the other thing I'm at, I came to the conclusion of in that meeting was it's not that you don't know what to do you're just not going to do it because what you need to do <laughs> is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. require that they um consider people of color like actually make this a requirement for being hired or for being funded you literally control all of the funding And so what you're really saying is that you don't want to break that autonomy because they all, well, faculty can choose whoever they want, but we've already just had a conversation where we said faculty are self-selecting and they're not often the best. So how can we have the same, like sentence one, sentence two, and not have the conclusion that you need to like overstep if your main goal is to have, you know, if you want me to stay in academia, I'm telling you what's going on. You know what's going on. So this is just like a therapy session in which I don't feel better. Because that's what this is.
1: <laughs> I mean, and I think, like you know, the worst thing about this, I don't know about, I don't know how things are. Like, for example, in English literature, um, where the funding, you know, now that I'm editor in chief of the Offing, I'm like, oh my god, arts funding, what a disaster! <laughs> like, it all seems like yeah. the science, the science funding disasters seem so mm-hmm. so much smaller now. But I, I, one of, I think one of the worst things about these conversations is how acceptable, like, really messed up comments are. Oh. Like, um, we don't want to sacrifice quality for diversity. What? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, I just... And, and in tandem with that, I think my, my husband's background is in ethnic studies mm-hmm. as an undergraduate. And the attacks on ethnic studies and the social sciences, I think, have been intimately tied to that, which is that we just don't need scholars of color on campus, much less like scholars of color. You think mm-hmm. about people of color stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's very tied together.
0: Yeah. Um, as we're speaking now, back at our PhD alma mater, there's actually a big meeting about um, the state of ethnic studies at Cornell uh, with all the directors of the various, well, Africana, and then the, we don't have a full center, but for, mm-hmm. for like Latino, Latina, Asian American, uh, the new indigenous, uh, newly named indigenous um, program. Like people are trying to come together and have these conversations <laughs> on a more positive note though. Chanda, I don't know if you saw my tweet, but today you published one of my friends. <gasps> hmm. Uh Um, Corey Williams. Yes.
1: Two poems. One of them had a very interesting experiment with form and in the second poem, I believe. Oh, that's super. (laughs) So for, for people listening, that's at the offing, which is the offing mag. Check it out, guys. And, I believe that that was in the Here You Are department, which is curated by our Here You Are editor, Connie Liu. So Connie will be very happy to hear that shout out, I think. We're also going to have, that's the plan anyway, is that on Monday we're going to have an essay by Alyssa Washuda, um, which I'm... Which I happen to be working on, so it's Mm. going to go in the insight department, which is the one that I curate, and I'm pretty excited Mm. about that, um, where she's going to be reflecting a little bit on how she sees, um, well, I don't know, the aftermath, whatever we want to call it, of the election, as a Mm -hmm. Cowlitz woman, which (sighs) is, the Cowlitz are a nation that is local to um, the Pacific Northwest, I was going to
0: say that um, I actually just submitted a piece for this uh, for a journal on the topic is the afterlives in 19th century American racism. And I'm actually thinking through how unfeeling can be a political act from below. Mm. And my title is actually the disaffected Black Lives Matter, <laughs> white woman's tears and the politics of unfeeling. Ooh, can and so I read that? what I actually, yeah, I'd be happy to send it to you. Do like, it. I particularly talk like, yeah, uh, if in case you guys are interested, like I'm talking about like how. We've spent so much time talking about feeling, but we should not be talking about how all feelings matter. And, like, there's this imperative right now for us to ignore white feelings because of white fragility that goes back to Uncle Tom's cabin. And that there's this sort of perverse afterlife of white liberal racism that I think comes out of Uncle Tom's cabin. That it's because white people think that they're the ones who have to feel a certain way, that they expect their feelings to be catered to, Mm. that I think comes through today with these hashtags that you see a lot in social media. I was wondering, did you want to, I know you said um, in our emails that people don't ask you about your science enough. Um, did you want to talk about early universe cosmology? Cause I'd love to hear about it, but I don't know if that's too much of a digression from.
1: Our so I'm, um, I guess I'll tell people, if you guys don't mind, I'll tell you a little bit about yeah. the era known as reheating. And I'll mention this actually, because um, a lot of people that I come across in the astronomy community don't spend a lot of time thinking about early universe cosmology. And there are various people in the physics community who don't think about early universe cosmology. And so a lot of times I cross paths with people who have no idea what reheating is. Um, So in some sense, this is something where, like, the general public joins with a lot of Mm -hmm. the people even within my professional community and not knowing. So um, we have whatever happened... Some people call it the Big Bang, so the universe came into existence somehow. We think pretty soon after that, like, you know, 10 to the minus 34 Mm -hmm. seconds into the existence of the universe or whatever came before, um, there was a period of inflation where actual space-time expanded really quickly. And you Mm -hmm. can envision this like a balloon that's just blowing up very, very fast. And and in Mm -hmm. fact, faster than the speed of light. So, space time expanded faster than the speed of light. It's still the case that nothing could travel in space time faster than the speed of light. <laughs> thank so God, physics is not broken. <laughs> yeah, thank God. I know, I know that you were an undergraduate in physics, list, so I know you were just like getting really stressed out, um, like just really. I know it can be stressful. Um, so if you imagine taking a room and suddenly expanding that room very quickly, that mm-hmm. the room would start to feel colder. So that's just something that's like a little bit more intuitive for us, that um, the temperature of the room would change. And so the same thing, we think that the same thing must have happened with space-time, that space-time also cooled off quite a bit, or the temperature that you would associate with space-time cooled off. But we know from lots of different astrophysics observations that there was a temperature, a higher temperature than what we think it cooled off to At which point um, things like what we call baryogenesis happen. So, basically, Mm -hmm. the formation of everyday matter that eventually Mm -hmm. turns into us happens. But the temperature needs to be high enough for that to occur. And so, there's this whole time period that we haven't really Mm -hmm. figured out how to describe mathematically during which the universe has to reheat. You have to find a way. So, I've written a blog about Mm -hmm. this called Turning the Universe Up a Notch which is a nod to my friend. It's a nod to my, one of my, my best friends is like my brother, Nick Conadaris, who is always (laughs) talking about turning things up a notch. Or he used to were in graduate school. And Nick, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Nick, we could could also have a whole podcast about Nick, but he's going to listen to this and be like, oh my God, shut up, Chanda. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um but he's he's really like he 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 was part of my mm-hmm. wedding party and we're like family like that um he could also tell you a story about one time he took me to a really good mm-hmm. like old school hip hop show and i was a little bit high and drunk and fell asleep at the back of the show
2: <laughs> that's what friends are for so that's I what you're, that's why you keep yeah, your a- old friends
1: close real close <laughs> He had to um, pick me up and carry me out of the show. And luckily, he's big enough that he can do that. (laughs) So anyway, um, back to the science and not being a bad influence on the kids. (laughs) um, So I would actually say that this is the moment where we need to turn the universe up a notch, and we don't know how to do it. And there are two problems here. There's the theoretical problem, which is what equations describe this process happening. But there's also an observational problem, which is how do we get data from this time period? Mm-hmm. And these are both unsolved problems. And so just a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I, um, along with a couple of undergraduates that we had worked with and um, a professor of physics and a historian of physics at MIT, David Kaiser, and um, a postdoc at University of Illinois, Evangelos Fakianakis, um, we published two papers that were part of a three-part series. So we published parts two and three Mm -hmm. on reheating in a particular um, mathematical model that we've been studying. So those are my two most recent publications and we just submitted them to a journal for review this Mm -hmm. week. And so we posted them to the archive. Thank you. We just posted them to the archive a couple of weeks ago. And so far, nobody told us we did anything wrong except that we left some references (laughs) out. So I'm feeling optimistic (laughs) about how they'll be received. Um, But anonymous physical review, D editor, if you're out there, please like it.
2: (laughs) That is really exciting. So that's reheating. (laughs) I have, I remember uh, sophomore year, I took modern physics. And in part, I think Gino Segre, he was just a very good storyteller. But I personally think the origin of the universe is the best bedtime story ever. I think. I mean it's a I, really interesting story if you just go and then like how the how the universe is formed, how did atoms form, how how did planets condense and form and why is iron like the largest, most stable, you know, particle that we atom that we have? I don't know, I just it was very great storytelling. It I thought it was very interesting and um
1: Yeah, I can't argue with you about that. I mean, although I guess I would say my husband is like a phenomenal storyteller, (laughs) and he once came up with this bedtime story about a jazz piano playing goat. That's pretty good. Okay, fair enough. All right. I'm done. That's like a close second for me. All
2: right. Yeah. Okay, I'd probably choose a jazz story, but it's still a great story. I think it's because it's full of like wonder and kind of mystery and. Fact. Yeah, yeah. So I had a question for you. I mean, most of my work is experimental and I'm kind yeah. of curious what it's like a day in the life of a theoretical scientist.
1: Um, so it really depends on the day. Um, especially since right now I'm living between Seattle, Washington and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some sense, I'm spoiled that I've been kind of going back and forth. I am. Um, But I just do a lot of calculus. Mm -hmm. That's really like, if I had to give the broad (laughs) brushstrokes, if you like calculus, then you will like being a theoretical cosmologist. I spend a lot of time reading journal articles Mm. and trying to keep up with what other people are doing, trying to figure out why, like there's one paper that I've been reading over the course of the last week that really, really bugs me. Mm. I haven't completely figured out why it bugs me, but I really do try and follow my gut. So I don't want... I do like to remind people that at least for me as a theorist, it's not a logical process. I just know that something in my unconscious has identified something that they don't like, that Mm -hmm. it doesn't like. And I'm trying to figure out what that is and then articulate it and then figure out if the next useful step is for me to write a paper that kind of addresses whatever was begging me. Right. So that's part of it. I do spend a decent amount of time using my husband is an idea. I am. <laughs> um, he's not a physicist. He's a lawyer with a master's in public health. Mm. And so I am, um, if I can articulate something to him, then it probably means that I actually mm, understand what okay. I'm talking about. If you understand something, you can teach it. Right. Or... I think so. So that, that, That's part of my day, actually, is is telling him about whatever ideas that I've been working through. And then it depends. Like, sometimes I have a meeting with my postdoc advisor at the University of Washington. Sometimes I get a text message from a mentee who's like, there's been a racist incident near Mm -hmm. my campus. I'm pretty freaked out right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to go into lab. Do you think it's okay for me to take the Mm -hmm. day off? That's a conversation I had recently. Um, Mm -hmm. Then there are... Other days were, like today, one of the things that I did, um, just because of timing, I had to schedule a phone call about Jewish Voice for Peace Mm -hmm. stuff. So I'm on the Jews of Color um, core, um, and I'm also on the Academic Advisory Council. Um, I do try and spend time writing out ideas, Mm -hmm. so... I'm kind of glued to Evernote. I own two iPads and I use both of them.
2: (laughs) Yeah, why two? (laughs) Um,
1: so I have like one iPad. I have a 12-inch iPad Pro, which like before they came, before they announced that, I had actually put it in an interview as like my dream iPad Mm. was a (laughs) 12-inch. And then I also have an iPad Air 2, Mm. and I use that one much more for reading, and the big Pro for taking notes on papers. And then um, the big one can't connect to social media or receive email. Oh, I see. It's my most unplugged device, so all I can do mm-hmm. on it is work, is read, and take notes on things and write. Mm. That's those are the only th- three things that I can do. And then, as as you all know, I also think about issues involving decolonizing right, science, hear about that. and I now mm-hmm. have this one hundred thousand dollar grant from the FQXI Foundation. Wow, congrats! To formalize some of the thinking that I've been doing. Thank you. And so. You know, part of my evening, sometimes while um, I'm waiting for dinner... My husband does all the cooking, by the way. Um, So while I'm waiting for dinner, (laughs) I'm often, like, reading some Sandra Harding or jotting down my notes about... I'm thinking about how science is defined, what it means to use the word science to describe activities and cultures that wouldn't use the word science themselves, Mm -hmm. but that I would categorize as scientific... Mm -hmm. And what it means to deny cultures the opportunity to use that word to describe activities that, hmm. um, so that that's a very theoretical way of describing it. So what would I say? Um, so there's a, a people that lives in the Amazon who horribly, um, their name is escaping me right now. That there's an anth- a South African anthropologist who spent quite a bit of time trying to understand their cosmology and their astronomical system, and they have a completely self-consistent astronomical system that allows them to predict when the next season is going to start. Mm. They have, I think, five different rainy seasons, and they can use astronomy to predict when those seasons are going to arrive Mm. with great accuracy. And um, that has a lot to do with the constellations and their understanding of where they're going to be. And this astronomical system has features that the traditional um, Euro-American astronomical system of looking at the sky, they have a different way of looking at it. But it it works as a scientific system. So the question is, do you describe that as science, even though they don't call it Mm -hmm. science? Um. Hmm. What does it mean to use the, to to impose that word, and then going in the other direction? If you do impose that word, is that an assimilationist stance of I can't mm-hmm. accept you in your own linguistic right. context, and I have to legitimize your intellectual or what I would call intellectual and scholarly work mm-hmm. by labeling it with this word that has been is considered legitimizing in a uh, Western context.
0: Um, I wrote, uh, one of my publications has to do with like, was good. well, the goth- American Gothic, but also um, differing like Western versus indigenous ideas of animals. And I just did a quick search on your decolonizing uh, science list, but have you come across uh, Gregory Cajete's native science? How do you, s- can um, you, how do you spell that? I'm, I'm not sure if, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but
1: C-A-J-E-T-E. Yeah. Oh, so, right. So I read, Um, that's the second, uh, you're the second person who's asked me about that in the last month. And the reason that's not on my list is because I read it and I didn't like Uh it. Uh, And what I didn't like about it was not because like, I felt like he was trying to make a case for native science, native um, science in a native American context, mm. but the way in which he did it seemed very grasping at strawsy. That's how I, th- mm. but this was like five years ago. I think I probably need to reread it because I'm, I'm much more educated person now. I hope I've grown in between. <laughs> um, but I also feel like you don't need to grasp at straws to make the case for Native American scientific epistemologies or epistemologies that we would categorize as science in the American Academy. And that was actually my objection to it. It was not so much that he was trying to make the ca- a case that can't be made, although somebody actually emailed me and told me recently that we need to be careful about telling people that they have a history of science when people like them never did science. And I was like, that's not, that's not actually a real problem. <laughs> Um, so I think I need, I probably need to reread it, but, um, there, there is some good stuff that isn't on the list. There's a great book from 2013 that I haven't read yet, but... I trust my friends when they tell me it's great, by Kim TallBear, which is about Native Americans and DNA.
0: I actually just got that from the library. I'm getting my my copy sometime in the next
1: week. That's my plan. Um, But I think that there's a lot of phenomenal scholarly work by women of color in particular about DNA and genetics. Hmm. It's coming out right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And possibly because I've been sort of surrounded by that, I actually have a an article in the winter issue of bitch magazine, which is apparently mm. on its way to subscribers Ooh. right now about okay. it's entitled the physics of melanin. Hmm. And um, it's kind of a, per, it's a little bit of a personal essay, but I hope it explains some things too.
0: I would love to read it. Cause um, there's also a book that came out, I think last year or two years in the humanities called the physics of blackness. Oh yes.
1: I've read, I've yeah. read, which I've, I feel like, people have had mixed reactions to but we could talk about I can I'll later. make one comment about that which I I see as a general disconnect between those of us who are black scientists mm-hmm. Liz May have a totally different take on mm-hmm. this than I do mm-hmm. and people in black studies Um, which is I think one of the hardest things about becoming a black scientist is imagining that you can be a black scientist Mm. like going back to that conversation earlier about being beyond your ancestors wildest dreams Mm -hmm. that sometimes we have to become beyond our own wildest dreams that's part of the challenge of being a woman of color in traditionally white spaces and um, I think Sometimes people working within black studies context can have a hard time imagining black scientists. Yeah. And mm-hmm. black scientific history and black intellectual history. And so I do wish that when people are thinking about things like the physics of blackness that instead of just reading a book by a white theoretical physicist like Lisa Randall um maybe come talk to some black scientists about is this how you see it. I think it can really enrich the work.
2: Mhm. Hmm. Those are overall good comments. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, expected, but they definitely resonate. Like, I definitely had this moment. I was, um, I was working at the NIH, and I was wearing a lab coat. And I've done that before. But for some reason, I was in the building, and I ran across a mirror and, like, had a double take. Yep. Because it never – because white coat, black person, something doesn't fit here. And it dawned on me, like – why I've done this before, but why is like seeing myself in the mirror or some reflection somehow in this building jarring?
1: So I would actually recommend if you've never done this before, as often as possible when you're giving scientific talks or when you're just in scientific spaces, tell people to take pictures of you and have, have those pictures, look at yourself. Somebody did this, Scott Traeger, who's a professor at the, the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Um tweeted a picture of me giving a talk about dark mm-hmm. matter last year and that I actually ended up asking him for a copy of the picture because I was like, whoa, check that out. She's like yeah. talking science. <laughs> and sometimes when you can't see people who are like you, you have to be the yeah. person that you see. Yeah. Mm. Kind of like so don't just see yourself in a mirror, but actually get that image and save it.
0: Oh, I thought one way that might be nice to end is that I actually um, looked up the poem, Langston Hughes poem Mm -hmm. that uh, Chanda talked about. And Mm -hmm. maybe could I... Dr. Yao. Well, bringing bringing the poetry, (laughs) if you... It's short, so may I just read it out? Yes. For the benefit of our listeners? Please. So, Dreams by Langston Hughes. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field, frozen with snow.
2: Oh, I want to cry. I think this is where we snap, yeah. do the snaps. <laughs> Thank you for finding that. This was great. This was just as awesome as I thought it would be. All the months that we have been hoping to have this podcast Thank you for being our guest and our inspiration and being a great human being. We really appreciate you, Chanda. And um, I look forward to reading all the articles that you've written so far and keeping up and some of the other. You do so much. You really do.
1: And, um, yeah, thank you. Thank Thank you. you so much. for. I just want to hang out with you guys right thank you so much for having me time. and anyway. <laughs> for having this amazing podcast um it's a gift i think particularly for women of color but i'm sure to everybody else but um it's been heartening for me for you all to be out there so thank you
2: so much love so much excitement i'm tearing up. Not yet but i will you just listened to an episode of PhD, This Podcast with Dr. Liz Wayne and Dr. Zanyal and our special guest, Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein. We hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter under the, the Handle PhD, this Podcast. See you next week.